We are in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. And we started this passage last week. And I think we finished in verse 14. And we'll pick up in verse 15, but we'll, we'll start reading. We'll read the whole chapter again, uh, just because it, it all runs together. So Matthew chapter 15, and let's pick up in verse 1. There it says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, what, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowds to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Departing from there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. 
And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be together tonight, Lord, to open up your word. And Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, feed us tonight. Lord, just as you fed the 4,000, Lord, we pray that you feed us with the bread of heaven. Lord, that you would open up and unfold to us the very word of life. And that, Lord, it might be nourishment for our souls. Lord, as well, we pray that you teach us tonight that, Lord, it is our sin that defiles us. Lord, those things that come from within our heart, Lord, that defile the man. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be purified in your sight, Lord, that you would cleanse them of all sin, and that, Lord, you would wash us and make us white as snow. So, Father, we pray that you help us to rightly understand, Lord, these spiritual issues, Lord, for our own uh, salvation, Lord, for the salvation of our children, Lord, that we might properly understand, Lord, you and your will and how to teach men to be reconciled to you. So, Father, be with us tonight. Help us. Lord, guide us into all truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we began this chapter last week where the first part through verse 20 is a lengthy discourse uh, between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, a controversy that arose. Uh, not that Jesus was looking for conflict and fights. He's minding his own business. And yet these controversies find him, right? And this is the way it often is as well. Uh, we want to get along. We want to be at peace with people. We want those types of things. And yet, if we are adhering to the Bible and the word of God and trying to live a godly life, inevitably controversy will find us. And when it does, then we just have to deal with it, right? Deal with it in the proper way. And that's what Jesus does here. The scribes and Pharisees come bringing this accusation of Jesus and his disciples. And why it is that they don't follow the traditions of the elders in that they're not washing their hands before they eat, right? Before they eat as a term, uh, as an issue of defilement, right? This is an issue in their mind of righteousness and sin, right? We're not talking about hygiene. We're not talking about, you know, if you're dirty and you need to wash and bathe yourself, they're doing it in the sense of spiritual uh, righteousness and sin, that this is an issue of sin. And they're criticizing, accusing Jesus and his disciples of committing sin because they're not following these traditions of the elders. And this leads Jesus to push back against them and ask them, why are you breaking the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? And then he uses this example of them breaking the commandment to honor your father and mother in order to establish their tradition of korban, right? Korban, this tradition that the person might dedicate something as a gift to God. And then if they dedicate this money as a gift from, to God, then the scribes and Pharisees will no longer allow that son to use that money to support his aging parents, right? Which is part of the commandment to honor your father and mother, that we are to care for our parents in their old age, this is an issue of piety, of righteousness, of faithfulness to God. And yet, for the sake of their tradition, Korban, which is not in the Bible and that they've made up out of their own mind, they are insisting that people do this. And then as a result, 
then they won't allow them to keep the commandment to honor their father and mother. And they do many such things, according to Mark chapter 7. This is one example of the many things that they do. Another one being here, their washing rituals and the criticism that they are bringing against Jesus and his disciples. Because the Bible teaches against uh, justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, right? The one who does that, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to God in the sight of God. Well, they're condemning innocent men, right, based on their own traditions, not based upon the word of God. So Jesus is rightly exposing them for this fraudulent religion, and he compares them to the people in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13, that you are what Isaiah prophesied, people who honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? And in vain, they worship God, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They elevate the precepts of men to the place of the doctrines of God, right? To the commandments of God. And actually above those things, because their corrupt uh, precepts and traditions actually smother out the word of God and the commandments of God. Then Jesus goes on to show them to teach the crowds that it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. In terms of spiritual defilement, in terms of sin, right? It's not what you put into your body that defiles you, but rather it's what comes out of you, what comes out of the heart that proves and shows what the man is, that the man is defiled. And naturally speaking, in all of our hearts, according to our nature, our sin nature, these things reside in the heart of men. And it's only through conversion that those things are removed and the Spirit of God is there and we have a new heart. But then even as believers, we still have the flesh that still produces these types of things. Those are the things that defile a man before God. It's sin, right? It's not a certain kind of food. It's not whether you uh, had your hands washed or not. Those aren't the things that ultimately defile the man. Then we saw as well, that the disciples came and said to Jesus, do you know you offended the Pharisees when you said those things, right? Which is often common as well. These people start fights. And then when you push back against them, they start kicking and screaming and saying, you're offending me. Well, you offended me whenever you accused us of committing sin, right? Didn't they offend Jesus and his disciples when they were accusing them of committing sin by not eating with hands that were washed? So why is it okay for them to lob insults on Jesus and his disciples? But the minute Jesus pushes back against them, now everyone's concerned because the Pharisees are offended. And that's why he says, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let them be. Every plant that my father has not planted is going to be uprooted. These are uh, plants that have not been planted by God. They are not wheat. They are tares. And ultimately on the day of judgment, they will be uprooted. So leave them alone. Let them be. Let them... Uh, stew and be mad, let them alone, right? They're blind guides and they're all going to fall into a pit together. They're going to go to hell is what Jesus is saying. And so I'm not concerned about these people. Okay, so that brings us up to verse 15 where we will pick up tonight. Verse 15, which is further explanation of what Jesus is talking about. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, 
and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Here, they want Jesus to explain further the parable, the saying that Jesus stated in verse 11, when he says, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man, right? Though this is a very pretty clear, straightforward statement, they still are confused about it. They don't understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so they come to him and they want him to further explain it. Give us more insight, more clarity into what you are talking about here. This parable, this saying that you've said, explain it to us. Jesus initially in verse 16, he gives them a mild rebuke and he says, how do you not understand this, right? Are you still without understanding? How can you not know and understand these types of things? And likely what's confusing them are these laws in the Old Testament that relate to food laws, dietary laws that symbolically or ceremonially would make people unclean. So they're confused likely because of that, because in their mind, if you ate a certain kind of meat, you were putting that meat into your mouth and that would make you defiled in the ceremonial sense, right? In terms of like pork, which was forbidden to eat pork in the Old Testament under the law of Moses. And if they ate pork, then they would become defiled. But that was a symbol. That was a ritual, a ceremony that had a greater purpose. And ultimately, it's not eating pork that makes someone defile before God. It is our sin. And this law against pork or against some other food was intended to communicate a greater spiritual truth. And that's what they're not understanding. And that's why Jesus says, how do you not understand these things? This is elementary. This is, you have to understand these laws, the relationship of these laws in the Old Testament to the spiritual reality and what is going on. This is part and parcel of why the Pharisees have this corruption. They have a corruption because they're thinking in terms of what is physical and natural, but those physical laws are intended to draw our minds higher to spiritual realities. But if we're not comprehending the spiritual, then it becomes a tradition that is useless and vain. And people think, well, as long as I don't eat pork or I don't eat whatever meat is there in the Bible, then I'm going to go to heaven while committing adultery, while committing fornication, while committing idolatry, while stealing, while lying. This is the way people think, right? If I do these rituals, it's all going to be all right with me. But it's not enough to do the ritual if the ritual is not accompanied with true faith and understanding of the spiritual reality and obedience. Then the ritual is beneficial to us, but without the spiritual, the ritual becomes itself a stumbling block and a trap, a snare that leads people to hell. And this is what was happening in the days of Christ in many, many different ways. And one of those was in regards to these types of laws. So they want to understand more. What, what are you talking about in relationship to these law things that make us unclean, right? By what goes in. So then Jesus says in verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Whatever food you put into your mouth, 
it does not come into contact with your heart, right? Your spiritual heart, the center of your being. Rather, it goes to your stomach and then it goes there, is digested, and then it's expelled out of you. And how can that make you a sinner before God? How can that defile you in the presence of God, right? When it's not dealing with the heart, it's not touching the heart. It's just food, right? right? It's just food. It's just drink. It goes into your mouth and then it is expelled. So it doesn't touch the heart. But verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles. Rather, it's what comes out of the mouth that shows the defilement of the man. And what is the source of the defilement of man? It's the heart, the sinful, wicked, dead heart. That stony dead heart is defiled. And because it is defiled, the whole man is defiled. And ultimately that internal inward defilement will manifest itself outwardly in the thoughts, in the words, in the behaviors of the man. And the chief uh, instrument that we have that manifests the condition of the heart is the tongue. It's the mouth, right? It is the mouth that more than anything else shows us what is in the heart. If what comes out of the mouth are lies, uh, impurities, uh, curse words, those types of things, then it shows that the heart of that man is filled with lies, impurities, cursings, blasphemies against God, all these types of things. That is what defiles the man. It is the sin that resides in the heart that makes someone defiled in the sight of God. And that's what needs to be dealt with. It's not a matter of changing your diet. It's a matter of the heart being changed in the sight of God. And that's not something you can do. It's not something that you can control by what you put into your mouth or whether you wash your hands when you go home or not. That takes a miracle of God. But that's what we need to see and understand. It takes an act of God, the grace of God, to overcome the defilement of man because the defilement rests in the heart and only God can do that. Only God can do that. It's not a matter of diet or changing what we put into our mouth, but rather it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Here, he gives a category or a list, and the Bible does this in many places, a summary or uh, a list of the types of things that come out of the man. Now, these aren't exhaustive lists. We could go on and uh, you could write uh, uh, many, many chapters of the sins that come out of man, but it's a sufficient list, a sufficient list for us to know that these are sins against God and these are the things that come out of the man. And they come out of the man because they reside within his heart. The heart is filled with these types of things. Then verse 20, these are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. These sins defile men, make men uh, impure in the sight of God, but eating with unwashed hands does not make one impure in the sight of God, right? It does not defile him in the sight of God, whether he washes or does not wash. If a person is dead in his trespasses and sins, he can wash his body with bleach 10 times a day, 
and he's still going to be dead in trespasses and sins until his heart is changed. And if a man has a new heart, then even if his hands are dirty and he eats something, it's still not going to touch his heart. He's still clean in the sight of God, right? Because of the change of heart. Now let's look over in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark. And here, this is one of the passages in the New Testament that show that the laws relating to clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament were temporary, right? Temporary for a season and time, but no longer are they applicable today, right? And I want to make this point because many times people want to, they want to drive a wedge between the Old Testament and New Testament because they don't want to obey God. They want to disobey God. They want to live a licentious life and they want to get Christianity away from the Ten Commandments so that they can live a perverse life, okay? And they'll use these types of things as justification for doing so. And certainly, if in the New Testament we have a holy apostle and the holy apostle tells us that some law is abrogated or is fulfilled or was for a season and time and it's not applicable anymore, then we should not follow that. But if the holy apostle does not, then we should follow it. That's the way that we should look at the Old Testament. Whatever is there is applicable today and we should follow it unless we have an apostle telling us or Jesus Christ telling us that it no longer applies. And there are certain laws from Moses onward, from Moses to Christ, that were there temporarily, ceremonial laws, in order to keep the people in preparation for the coming of Christ, to teach them spiritual truths. But then when Christ comes, those things are no longer necessary, and then they're set aside such as the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood. We don't do those things anymore because those were there to teach the people about the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come, they're no longer necessary. And so they are set aside. And the same would apply to these laws relating to clean and unclean foods. And we say that because of Mark chapter 7. Mark seven fourteen. Mark 7, 14 says, After he called the crowd to him, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. There in verse 19, likely in your Bible, in mine, it has that last phrase, the last sentence of verse 19 in parentheses, in parentheses, 
And this is the translator's way of indicating to us that what is inserted there is a commentary by Mark, who is writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's making a statement in relationship to what Christ has just stated. And the obvious implication is that all foods are clean. Thus, he declared all foods clean. This statement, this teaching, is the basis for that practice. Why we don't follow and keep the Old Testament dietary laws of clean and unclean foods. Because here, he's showing us that those are symbols or ceremonies that were necessary for a time, but they were always intended to be temporary. And they were temporary until the coming of Christ in order to teach the people the distinction between what is clean and unclean or what is holy and unholy. Not food, but what? Sin. Sin and righteousness. That's what they are intended to teach them. And they had this set before them as an example that they saw each and every day in clean and unclean foods. Also, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We have another um, teaching concerning this. These are the two major passages in the New Testament that deal with food laws, food laws. And then Hebrews 7 to 10 would be significant passages dealing with the ceremonies regarding the worship at the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, okay? Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. It says, on the next day, as they were on their way and approached the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So here, Peter has this trance, and he sees this object like a sheet coming down with all kinds of animals in it. And these animals are unclean animals. Unclean animals according to the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant, okay? And then the Lord tells him to rise, kill, and eat. He protests and says, I've never eaten anything unclean or unholy. I've never eaten any unclean food. And according to the law of Moses, he should not have been eating those things because he was living under that law. But now God tells him, don't you call unclean and unholy what I say is clean. And now you need to do this. Now, is this because God wants people to enjoy pork and bacon and sausage and other kinds of meats? Because we've been deprived, they've been deprived and it's so savory and good, you know, to have bacon in the morning. And we've been depriving these people. Is that the real issue that's going on here? Right? What is this teaching about? What is everything that's going on in Acts chapter 10 and 11? It has its relationship to people, 
to people, namely to Gentiles, to Gentiles, Gentile believers. Don't you call Gentiles who are believers unclean and don't refuse to fellowship with them because that was part of the purpose of the dietary laws was to make a distinction and separation between Israel and the Gentiles because salvation was of the Jews and the Messiah was going to come from Israel. So it was necessary to keep them separated from the world so that the Christ might come through them. And one of the means God established to bring this about were these food laws that made a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. But now Christ has come into the world. The role of Israel has been fulfilled in bringing that about, and these distinctions are no longer necessary. The dividing wall has been torn down, and there's no longer Jew or Greek. So you should be you should be fine to go eat with Gentiles, even if the Gentile sets before you something that previously you would have considered unclean and would not have touched. That's the point of Acts chapter 10, because immediately after this is when he goes to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and that's when all that takes place there. So that's what Jesus is dealing with here in Matthew chapter 15 as well. Okay, verse 21, which then leads right into a person, right? A person. Chapter 20, uh, 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. He did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed from the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Here, we're back to the issue of what makes someone clean and what makes someone unclean? It's not a matter of what goes into the mouth, according to verses 15 to 20. Here in verse 21, it's also not a matter of your heritage, of your ethnicity. That does not make you clean or unclean. And this, again, is a common misconception, especially with the Jews, because they consider themselves clean, and they consider the Gentiles to be unclean. But here, this woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite woman. And yet, what do we find to be true of her? In terms of spirituality, she's more clean than most of the Israelite women because she has true faith, whereas most of them are unbelieving and they do not have faith. So in terms of her physical descent, she's unclean. But in terms of her spirituality, she is clean. The Jews, in terms of their physical descent, are more clean. But in terms of their spirituality, they are unclean. And what matters? In the end of things, what makes the difference? What gets someone into heaven? Your ethnic heritage or the state of your soul, your spiritual condition, right? That's the issue that is going on here. So we're back to this issue of what is it that defiles a man? Is it the external or is it the internal? And she is, according to verse 22, she is a Canaanite woman. 
So then we have to ask, well, what is then the purpose of any of this stuff? Why did God make a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the Israelites and between the Canaanites? So is there any advantage to being a Jew? And the answer is, yes, of course there is. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. There is an advantage, but you have to understand it correctly. But if you don't understand it correctly, then it actually becomes a disadvantage, right? It becomes a stumbling block and a snare to salvation. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So there in verse 1, he asks that question because of what he's talking about in chapter 2. Right? If a Gentile who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of God, his uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision. But if a Jew who is circumcised physically but doesn't keep the law, he will be treated as an uncircumcised Gentile. So he's asking then, what's the point of all this? Right? What is the advantage? What is the purpose? Right? Does the Jew have any advantage if it does not guarantee salvation? And his answer is yes, there is an advantage. And their advantage is the oracles of God. They have access to the word of God and they were entrusted with the oracles of God, but the Gentiles were not entrusted with those oracles and they did not have as ready access to the things of God as the Jews did. Also, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he speaks further of the advantages of the Jews. And these were true of Israelites and not true of the nations, right? It was given only to them. God has not dealt thus with any other nation. Praise the Lord, it says in the book of Psalm. Romans 9, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from them is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So the Israelites, to them belong. All of these blessings, adoption, glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the fathers, they came from the fathers. Is it good to have Abraham as your forefather? Isaac, and of course it is. It's a great advantage to have that. And Christ is coming through them. 
He wasn't coming through the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any other nation. He was coming through them. So these are the advantages that they have. So there is a benefit and a blessing to being a Jew, right? And even the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So we are naturally Jews and we're not Gentile sinners. We're not sinners like those among the Gentiles. Okay, so the Bible does speak of these advantages. But can those outward, external, physical advantages overcome the spiritual? the inward. Can those things overcome sin? Do the physical advantages guarantee salvation if the spiritual reality is lacking, if the spiritual reality is not there? And the answer is no. So that was the problem with the Jews. They thought their heritage, their proximity, their having the law, the temple, these types of things, these rituals, their herit- their forefathers, their ancestry, all of these things they thought guaranteed them the favor of God and that they were going to go to heaven. And this is why they're constantly being rebuked by the prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles later, for this false religion. It was false, it's idolatry for them to think in that way. Didn't John the Baptist say to them, do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Well, why is he saying that to them? Because that's what they're putting their hope in. Abraham's our father. We have nothing to worry about. Jesus has to do that in John chapter 8 as well. And in John chapter 5, he's dealing with them on these issues as well. So they're putting their focus on the wrong things, on their physical heritage. And those physical things are good, but not if they don't lead to the spiritual reality. Then, in terms of the Gentiles, and and specifically in terms of this woman, who is a Canaanite woman, Is there a disadvantage to being a Canaanite? Of course there is, right? They are wicked people. They're idolatrous people. Likely all of her family are idol worshipers. They have a history of this type of life. But are those physical disadvantages insurmountable? Can the spiritual overcome the physical deficiency if the the spirit gives the grace of God? And the answer is yes. The spiritual, the spirit can overcome whatever physical, external disadvantage a person has. And we have many examples of this in the Bible as well. For example, Luke chapter 4. This is the point of Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth. And after this sermon, they wanted to throw him over a cliff. Okay? So... There you go. Luke 4, 25 to 30. Jesus is making a point that without faith in Christ, then you're going to go to hell. You're going to die in your sins and you're going to go to hell. And that God's blessing is upon those who believe. That's where the blessing of God is found, not your heritage, not what nation you're from. And he brings forward these two examples 
from the past, from Israel's history, who were foreigners, Gentiles, who received the blessing of God in contrast to their, own, to their countrymen of the Jews, the Israelites, who did not receive the blessing of God. And what made the difference between the two? Faith. They had true faith. 25, 425, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Right? When there is a famine for three years and we know that this widow, she thought she was going to die. That's what her plan was. She was going to go make uh, one final cake for her and her son, and then they were going to die. That's what she fully intended to happen. And if Elijah had not come to her, what would have happened? She would have died. So is it safe to assume that there were many widows in Israel who died from this famine? Many people died from that famine. That's what happens when there's famine. People die from starvation in this situation. Well, why didn't Elijah go to the widows of Israel? Why did he go to Sidon, to a foreign area? And isn't it interesting that in our passage in Matthew 15, where is Jesus at? He's in Sidon. She's the Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite. That's who he went to. He didn't help any of those in Israel. He only helped her. And what did she have? She had faith. She had faith by the grace of God. And also 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the times of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Many lepers in Israel, and Elisha didn't help any of them, but he did help Naaman the Syrian. And what was true of Naaman? Well, the same that was true of the widow. He had faith. He was a believer. The point Jesus is making here is you people are trusting in the wrong things. And if you don't have true faith in the Messiah, in the Christ, and that's Jesus, then you're going to die in your sins and go to hell. Whereas this widow and Naaman, who are Gentiles, they're going to go to heaven because of their faith. They had faith. And then the people are enraged and they want to throw him over a cliff. Another example, James chapter 2. James chapter 2 James 2, 25 to 26. We have another Canaanite, a Canaanitess. James 2, 25 to 26. It says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Rahab was also a Canaanite woman, and she was justified. When he says justified by works, of course, he doesn't mean that it was her works or her obedience that made her right in the sight of God. He's speaking of the contrast between true faith and false faith. And true faith is manifested by good works. And the true faith of Rahab that comes about by the Spirit of God as a gift from God was manifested when she hid the messengers and sent them out by another way. But she had true faith, even though she was from Canaan. She was not an Israelite. Then also we know from Ruth chapter 4, Ruth 4, 13 to 15, that Ruth was a Moabitess, right? She was not 
from Israel. She was not a Jew, and yet she had true faith, and she became an ancestor of Christ. One of he came from that union between her and Boaz. So here we have then a Canaanite woman in verse 22. And we will see that this Canaanite woman who physically would be an outcast in terms of her heritage and in terms of the lineage that she comes from, yet ultimately she will be commended by Christ on the basis of her faith, on the basis of faith. And that's what we have to see. That's the key component. Faith and repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when people trust and put their hope in other things, then it always leads to ruin and destruction. We have to have our focus on the right things, right? On the spiritual reality and not merely on those physical things or those rituals, whatever it is that people put their hope in. Okay, also another point to be made in terms of this. Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20, this is another example of God using the sin and disobedience of men to bring about his own will and purposes and good in the world. Because according to Deuteronomy 20, 17, what was supposed to happen to all the Canaanites? They were supposed to kill them all. And if all the Canaanites were killed, then this woman doesn't exist, Right? Because all of her ancestors would have been dead and there would be no people for her to come from. This according to Deuteronomy twenty seventeen, But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. They were supposed to utterly destroy them, but they didn't, right? They failed to do so according to Joshua. Joshua chapter 16 and verse 10 says, But they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. So Israel was not faithful and obedient to do what God told them to do in Deuteronomy twenty seventeen. So was that a sin for them to do that? Yes, it was a sin. But this is similar to Genesis fifty twenty. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God takes even the sin of men, the disobedience of men, and then uses it to bring about his greater purposes. And here we will find one day that there is a Canaanite woman in heaven, this Syrophoenician woman, and part of the reason she's there is because of the disobedience of the people of Israel. But God uses it for his good. Now, in terms of the revealed will of God, we need to do God's will. And that's what they should have done, right? The hidden things, the secret things, this is a secret thing. It belongs to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and our children. We need to do the will of God. We shouldn't use, well, God will use it for his own purpose as an excuse for our own sin, just as they shouldn't have done that. But even when people sin, God is able to take that sin and use it for his greater purposes, just as he did with Joseph and his brothers. Was it good for his brothers to try to murder him and sell him into slavery? No, it's horrible. It's an evil thing for them to do that. And they weren't thinking, you know, we know there's going to be a famine in the future, so we're going to send you ahead, and it's all going to work out according to the plan of God. No, they had evil in their heart, jealousy, hatred for their brother. They were doing it for evil. Are they excused for their evil because God used it and brought about good? No. It shows us the greatness of God, 
not any excuse for man. And that's the same as here. God uses all things, right? He brings it about for his purposes, for his people, for his glory. And here, even the disobedience of them, so many years before, 1400 years before, God uses here to bring about the salvation of this woman who is one of his elect, his chosen ones. Okay, that's just a side point. Okay, then back to verse 22. Notice here what she says. She came and began to cry out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now here, this short statement, we might say, well, how does she know all this stuff, right? Where's all the things that she's saying shows that she has a proper understanding of who Christ is, his person, his work, she understands grace properly and that it's a gift that God must give. She understands many things in this short statement. She says, Lord, she calls him Lord. Well, who is our only master and Lord? Jesus Christ. And we call him our Lord because he's not merely a man. But in this context, she's not saying this in terms of respect for a man, like we might call the governor Lord or some dignitary Lord. She's meaning this in terms of divinity. That's why she's addressing him as Lord. And in this context, it would be idolatry or blasphemy to address someone as Lord and mean it in the sense of them being divine. But she means it in that way. She calls him her Lord. Also, son of David. Son of David. Why is she calling him son of David? She knows the promises of the Old Testament that the Christ, the Messiah, would come from the lineage of David. That he would come from the house of David. We know this to be common knowledge, at least among the Jews, because in Matthew, when the wise men come to Jerusalem and they want to know where is the Christ to be born, they all know it's in the city of David because everyone knows and understands that he is going to be of the house and line of David. She understands that. So she knows of his divinity in calling him Lord. She also knows of his humanity in that as a man, he comes from the house of David. So she understands both the full humanity and the full deity of Christ, that he is both fully God and fully man in the one person. And she's addressing him in such, right? So again, I say this because many times people say, well, these doctrines, no one understood them. No one even understood them in the New Testament. No one even in the early church understood it. It wasn't until many, many years that these doctrines were formulated. Well, this is a woman, a common woman, who's not even a Jew. She's a Canaanite. And she knows and understands these things. And the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So how does she know this? From the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what is teaching her these things. So it's in keeping with the Old Testament promises and her exposure to the Word of God. That's how she would know these things. Also, she knows that the mercy of God is free, meaning you can't earn it because she's begging for it, right? She's not coming to him saying, Lord, I, I gave a, a million dollars to the temple and on the basis of me doing that, will you heal my daughter? Lord, I ran a marathon and on the basis of my running a marathon, will you heal my daughter? Lord, I did a hundred push-ups, and that's why you should, she's not saying any of those things. Or I read my Bible 10 times this year, and because I did that, then I want you to do, you need to do this for me. She's not thinking in those terms. She's coming, begging, pleading with him, 
because she understands that God's mercy, he can give it to whomever he pleases. And all we can do as sinners, we have no right to the mercy of God. All we can do is what? Beg. That's all we can do is beg. Beg for it. And this is the way that God gives it. So she understands that as well. Also, she understands that there are spiritual forces. Doesn't she know her daughter is cruelly possessed by a demon? So she understands that there are demons and there's a devil, but also that Jesus is greater than them, that he has more power than the devil and demons because he's divine. So all these things are in this one short statement that she says. Now, again, the point of that is to show that these people are not dumb as a box of rocks. They're not ignorant. They're not dummies as people commonly portray the saints in the Bible. And she would be, again, though it's written in the New Testament, in terms of what has what is available to them, it's only the Old Testament at this point because none of the New Testament has been written when this is taking place. All this she knows from the Old Testament and from being taught the Old Testament. Okay, verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Now here, she's coming to Jesus, begging him to have mercy on her, and he is giving her the cold shoulder, is what it appears to be. He's not answering her. He's not listening to her. He doesn't say a word to her, even to the point that the disciples are saying, at least answer her because she won't leave us alone. She's shouting and she keeps imploring us. So at least send her away because she's bugging us, right? So they want him to do something about it. Now, it seems out of character for Christ to do this. Why is he doing this? Why is he treating her in this way? Well, he's doing it for a reason, to test her, to test her and to make a point, to prove what kind of faith this woman has in order to manifest the greatness of her faith. So he's testing her to see what kind of faith is in her and to manifest and to bring that faith to the surface. Now, I say that because today, commonly in the churches, what do people want to do? Do they want to make it difficult for someone to become a Christian or very, very easy for someone to become a Christian? Yes, very, very easy. So easy. So easy that anyone can do it. Even a caveman could do it. That's how easy they want to make it. They want to make it to where you don't even have to say anything. Just raise your hand slightly or peek up at here at me or whatever. Or repeat this prayer after me. Let's all just repeat it together. This happened at a church I went to once. We'll all just say it together. That way no one feels like they're being put on the spot because we don't want to embarrass anyone. We want to make it very accessible and very easy for them to become Christians. Also, it is common that people fear this idea that, you know, these people might have been converted. That, that conversion is hanging in the balance. Salvation is so fickle and it's hanging in the balance and that we might bungle it up, right? And if we would have had another stanza of just as I am, maybe someone would have been saved. Have you ever heard that? Because I have, right? I have it. I've, I've heard that. We need to have an invitation and we need to sing 40 verses of this because we don't know. Maybe there's someone out there and if we would have sang one more verse, 
then they might have become a Christian. But now, they'll never become a Christian and they're going to die and go to hell. Or if I would have said the words just the right way. Well, now, of course, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to have a clear thought. We need to communicate it to the best of our ability. But is salvation so delicate? Is it hanging in the balance like this? That it could go this way, it could go that way? Nope. No, of course not. Of course not. And here we have an example where he's putting up huge roadblocks, huge obstacles in front of this woman. And with every obstacle, what does she do? She soars over it, right? There's nothing that's going to stop her from getting what she wants because this is what the grace of God does. When we talk about irresistible grace, this is what we mean. When God calls a person by his grace, is it possible for that person to walk away, for them to not come? No, because God is the one who's doing it. And in this woman, we have an example of when God calls a person, they will come to salvation, even if there are many obstacles in the way. So it's not so delicate as people make it out to be. And all we need to do is be faithful to preach the word of God and tell people this is what the Bible says. But many times people get so hung up. Well, if you, you need to say it the right way. Did, were, you, were you smiling when you said it? Did you, <laughs> did you pour a pound of sugar on their head when you said it, right? Were you very, very gracious? And I'm not talking about being a jerk. We shouldn't be jerks in that way. But again, we just need to say what the Bible says and do what needs to be done. John 6, 37. John 6, 37. This verse is manifested, proven in Matthew 15. 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Will come to me. Even if, initially, I give her the silent treatment. I give her the cold shoulder. I call her a dog to her face. She will still come to me because she has been given to Christ by the Father and it's impossible for her not to come to Christ because it is the grace of God that is doing it. Verse 24, but he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, in a sense, yes, this is true. Jesus came and primarily his ministry was to the Jews, to the Israelites. That's where he did the majority of his work and his ministry. And then it will be the, the disciples after his death, resurrection and ascension in the day of Pentecost that will then go out and begin taking the gospel into the nations. However, we know that Jesus was not against a Gentile being converted and being saved. And there are those that have done so. The centurion, we remember the centurion, he said, I've not found faith in all of Israel like this centurion, and he was a Gentile. So again, all of this is for the purpose of testing, of testing her. So he's come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He used the same phrase in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses five and six, when Jesus sent the disciples out on a short missionary trip, to go into the villages and preach the gospel, he told them in verse 5, Matthew 10, 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, 
Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there he's confining them to the Jews, because salvation is to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, according to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. And in the same way, Jesus came first to his own people, right? To the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks. Okay, then back to Matthew 15. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here, she is continuing to persevere. She continues to beg him. And here, she's bowing down before him, pleading with him for the Lord to help her. Then Jesus does it again, right? Already, he has not answered her. Already, he has said, no, I'm only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, right? In terms of Jew and Gentile, the Jews are like children and the Gentiles are like dogs. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, is this offensive to say this to someone? That you're like a dog? What, that's true, though. In terms of their spiritual condition, they are like dogs because they are idolaters. And she is a Canaanite. So he's saying it's not good to take the children's bread, to take what belongs to the children, which is here the word of God, the gospel of Christ, and to give it to dogs, to Gentiles, right? To those people. This would be like we read in Romans chapter 9. To them belong the promises. The promises belonged to the Jews, to the Israelites. And Jesus is saying, well, it's not good for me to give what is intended for the Jews to give it to a Gentile who is a dog. Now, at this point, we would say, oh, man, this is very offensive. And no wonder nobody listened to Jesus. No wonder his church was so small. No one followed him. No one believed in him. He's so offensive. And people would be very offended to hear someone say this. If Jesus came and did this in our day, wouldn't people rebuke him and tell him you shouldn't do that? Right? But here, this is what he's doing. Then verse 27. This is the point of it all. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Now, this shows first her humility. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? Don't you know that's very offensive to me? No, she admits it. She knows that, yes, her people, they are like dogs. But she says, even dogs get to eat. And even dogs eat food from the master's table, whatever falls on the ground, right? Don't people do that? They let the dogs come in and they eat the stuff off the ground. So give me something, right? I just want something from you, anything from you. I don't care how I get it. I don't care if I'm sitting at the table or if I'm eating it off the ground. I just want your help. I want your grace and mercy above anything else. And whatever it takes for me to get it, this is what I'm going to do. So this shows her perseverance. She will not be denied. She wants the mercy of God and she's not leaving until she gets it. And even if she has to concede, yes, I am a dog, then I don't care. I just want your grace and your mercy. Very humble for someone to be like this and great faith, right? To have this kind of perseverance to overcome 
these things. Second Kings chapter five, a similar incident. This was with Naaman we read about earlier because Naaman was not offended to the point of this woman. However, he was still offended by Elisha because Elisha didn't give him the time of day. He didn't even come out of his house to see him, but just sent one of his messengers to tell him what to do. And that was for the same purpose, to test him, to see, are you really serious? Are you going to do it? And initially, Naaman was offended. He didn't like it. He got mad. But then his servant talked some sense into him, and then he later went back and did what he needed to do. 2 Kings 5, 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abinah and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Same thing there. Elisha testing him, doesn't come out, tells him what to do. He's upset. He thought it was going to be a big show. He's got his entourage there, all of his horses and chariots. He doesn't even come out and talk to him. He wanted him to come out, wave his hands around, right? Wave your hands, call on the name of the Lord, and, he, and heal the leper. It would be this big show. But he just said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And there's better rivers up here. And he goes off in this rage, but his servant talks sense into him and says, if he told you to do some great thing, right, climb to the top of a mountain, and roll around in the snow, you would have done it because you would have thought, oh yeah, this will really do it. But he told you to do something very simple. So why don't you just go do it and then be healed? And then he said, okay, let's go do it. And then everything worked out. In the same way here, this woman is being tested and she perseveres. But she's better than Naaman because Naaman initially, temporarily was in a rage, but she didn't do that at all. She has humility the whole time. And that's good for her. Another uh, example would be Genesis 32. She is like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord. Genesis chapter 32, 24 to 26. says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his side, of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob refused to let go until he received the blessing of God. And that was good for him to do so, right? He was being tested to do so. And then what did God do? He blessed him. 
he gave him the blessing. That's the same as this woman here. She won't leave. She will not be denied. She will persevere. And this is the way that we have to be as well. We must persevere and overcome whatever temptation, whatever obstacle to enter the kingdom of God, we have to overcome it. We have to overcome it to enter into God's kingdom. Okay. Well, we'll stop there tonight and uh, pick up in verse 29 next week.